to the Actually Autistic podcast with my special guest, Sarah Hendricks. Sarah has a postgraduate certificate in Asperger syndrome and an MA in autism. She has been involved in the development of training materials for the Department of Education and spent three years working for the Ministry of Defense supporting autistic employees in science and technology. She's a member of the National Autistic Society's Accreditation Standards Panel and now acts as an associate lecturer on the PGC in Asperger Syndrome course. She has written six books in autism, Women and Girls with Autism Spectrum Disorder, Understanding Life Experiences from Early Childhood to Old Age, Asperger Syndrome, A Love Story, co-authored by Keith Newton, and I'm guessing that's from personal experience from the two of you. And uh, Love, Sex, and Relationships, What People with Asperger Syndrome Really, Really Want, Asperger Syndrome and Alcohol, Drinking to Cope, Asperger Syndrome and Employment, What People with Asperger Syndrome Really, Really Want, and the Adult and Adolescent Neurodiversity Handbook. That's a lot of books. (laughs) I, I noticed that you also wrote... How to Leave the Country, Turning the Living Aboard Dream into Reality. (laughs) (laughs) And I've also written a vegetarian cookery book. Oh, really? What's it called? (laughs) Oh, it was very, very long time ago when I was a student. I think, what's it called? I think it's just called The Student's Vegetarian Cookery Book. Mm. It was was in 1994. So vegetarianism and veganism was a bit more basic than than it is now. Uh Uh-huh. And are you still a vegetarian? No. No. <laughs> no. Well, I am. <laughs> oh, good. Don't buy the book. It's rubbish. But I, I still love you, Sarah. It's okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, Sarah, I've watched a bunch of your videos and I've read at least one of your books. And you had a really interesting path to discovering that you are autistic. How did you discover that you're autistic? Um. Well, it sounds a bit weird, but I don't think it is, given a lot of the people that I meet, um, that by the time I had worked out that I was autistic, I'd already written five books on autism, had a master's degree in autism, had been delivering training and conference presentations for, I don't know, seven or eight years. Um, and yeah, just knew lots of other members of my family had been diagnosed um and from the the book you mentioned that keith and i wrote together was about our relationship when we discovered that he was autistic but at the time i think even in the book i say i'm definitely not autistic (laughs) no i'm a bit odd i was diagnosed as dyslexic in my 30s i'm a bit peculiar but i definitely not autistic um, and the the whole thing came about, as, as I'm sure you're aware, is uh, in terms of females being um, such a new revelation that there may well be as many women on the autistic spectrum as there are men, mm-hmm. uh, given that everybody thought this was a male condition for as long as, as research has been happening. Um, and as I did all of my work and my training, I ran a, a mentoring project, a voluntary mentoring project for seven years. And most of the people that came through the project were, were guys. All my training told me that there were 10 times as many Asperger men as there were Asperger women. So I just got fed the same line that, that every autism professional got fed. Uh, and the change for me was starting to meet women who had been diagnosed and just 
just seeing my story, hearing my story in all of these women that, that were, and I could see how the autism fitted them with their chaotic lives, their multiple jobs, relationships, chaos that, that some of them had had. Um, but I hadn't ever really thought that that could apply to me. And so that was a real shock to start meeting these women and thinking, wow, that could be me. That, that's absolutely my story. Um, so that's, that's kind of how I eventually, it took, took me several years of thinking and reading and learning and writing million lists of why I did have autism and then why I didn't have autism. And so when I went for my diagnosis, I took these two lists and said, here's 15 pages why I do have autism <laughs> and here's 15 pages why I don't. So you need to prove to me why I why is there all this stuff that says I don't? And one by one, he just kind of went through each one and said, nah, 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 nah. Um, and yeah, and it and it, it was a it was a thing. Oh my so, gosh! Yeah. So you went through that for years. Yes. Oh, yes I, was that just, hell? I think when you when you work in the field and you have a, a small profile when you write books then obviously people in this very tiny world of autism kind of know who you are so the idea of suddenly going hey all these years I've been hanging out here and then suddenly going I'm autistic too it, it kind of feels like you're potentially just jumping onto a bandwagon mm. and I was really scared I was scared of getting it wrong and mm -hmm. I was scared of being accused of something I was scared that actually I just spend my whole life surrounded by autistic people and talking about autism that I just kind of projected it all onto myself. Mm -hmm. So it it felt for me that I had a little bit perhaps more to lose in that respect than maybe some people do in terms of coming out. Um, so even after the diagnosis, I didn't really tell anybody um, for another two or three years or so. Oh it was probably gosh. five or six years that I knew and that I didn't talk about it publicly to anybody. Because I just wasn't sure what the reception would be. Mm -hmm. I, I remember having the, the question, the actual question in my head is, what if my autistic brain is just tricking me into thinking I'm autistic? <laughs> and it's such a common thing. I'm, I meet people all the time. And even myself, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. you just go, I can't be autistic. I found that really easy. I've just talked to a stranger. Yeah. And then, yeah. <laughs> then you just go, oh, don't be so stupid. So I, I, I think... I, I wonder whether, as women, we are more prone to that doubt um, than than maybe men or other other others are. I don't know, but it it's it seems to be something I hear from women. They kind of whisper and go, "Sometimes I'm not sure I'm autistic at all." Yes, um, yes, I see that on forums <laughs> quite a bit, where people feel like yeah. they have imposter syndrome about being autistic. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely, and, yeah. and it. it it's always, you know, that running commentary is always there. And there are, there are moments that I just kind of go, I find life much too easy right now. Therefore, I can't be autistic. <laughs> and, then, and then yesterday I found myself standing in front of my bedroom window um, for a really long time, staring into space out of the window, rocking backwards and forwards for kind of five, ten minutes or so, and then suddenly became aware that I was doing that and thought, Wow, if anyone looked through my window right now, they, they would definitely think I was autistic. What, that's not completely normal? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> but it, yeah, it just feels like there's this, this constant internal voice mm. that says, 
is this okay? What am I doing? It's just watching, watching, censoring, checking, filtering. Mm-hmm. You know, how do I need to be? How do I need to be? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, the how do I need to be is, is so natural that um, we fool ourselves into thinking that we're... Yeah, you know, we, we get over-analytical about being over-analytical. Yeah, and, and then we fall into these stupid traps. So I know that it's perfectly feasible for an autistic person to have a conversation. And then when I manage to do it, I go, hey, I can't be autistic because I'm too sociable. <laughs> and then you just go, well, shut up. That's nonsense. You know that's nonsense. But, yeah. you know, in the moment, you just end up applying these ridiculous stereotypes to yourself. So, yeah, this all, all seems to me kind of symptomatic of the fact that women have such a difficult time getting diagnosed. What do you think it's going to take to make that be less difficult? I think that it's about training and awareness and that filtering down through the diagnostic professionals. They are the gatekeepers to these diagnoses um, or medical professionals of of some description. Uh, And I think it takes a long, long time for that to filter through. We're getting younger and newer people who are getting trained and they're getting all of this information. But there are people that have been in these fields for 30, 40, 50 years. And and those people, some of them, I think, are are just they're just not getting it. They're not Mm -hmm. they're not seeing it enough. Um, And it's only. The more they challenge, the more they understand. Um, that, that I think we will we will break through that. Um, I'm not convinced that we need additional clinical tools of any sort. I think it, the tool is only as good as the person whose hands it's in. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think if you're good enough, you should be able to see it. But I think it's so new. It's so new. Yes. You know, we we Asperger's came into the uh, you know, the the clinical manuals in 1994 so that's 25 years ago and we're you know just about getting there with that the female stuff gosh it's probably only been in the last 10 years that, that there's been this kind of explosion of individual conferences about women mm-hmm. people asking me to come and talk specifically about females so i i think we have a way to go but i think we're getting there do you think that some of the resistance is because some of these practitioners may also be autistic and are afraid to look at that? Um, I don't know. I don't know if it is for women. I, I think I think there's a big thing for women within whatever you want to call it, mental health, which is certainly in the UK where, where autism is dealt with if you are someone without an intellectual disability. There's There's always been a history of women being labeled with with neuroses mental health conditions personality disorders phobias anxiety disorders so there's a big a big history that if you see a male you may be more likely to diagnose that male with a neurological condition but if you see a female who's similar you may be more likely to diagnose that female with a psychological condition mm-hmm. so you know there's a massive long history of women being hysterical and unstable. Mm -hmm. So there's something really big and, in my opinion, big and deep there that that says you can't be autistic. You're just a bit bumpers or something. Um, So I I think there's a huge amount of stuff in in there. And I think we're we're our own worst enemy sometimes in just 
working out too well how to appear on the surface, um, not very autistic at all. Mm-hmm. And, and therefore, it's hard to sit in front of somebody and say, I do this, I do this, I do this in a very articulate way. And they're going, well, I'm not seeing any of that. Mm-hmm. You know, where's the flapping? Where's the rocking? Where's the monologue? And you're thinking, well, I do all that at home. Yes. I, I... <laughs> yeah. So I think it's a big, big thing, culturally, historically, gender. I think it's a big thing. Yeah. I have found that sometimes people accept it more if I just say I have Asperger's because they're not hip to the latest definition of autism, which is understandable since it's only like a year old or something. How do you feel that that shift of definition of Asperger's is a separate thing to being included in the official autism spectrum? How do you think that's affecting things, if at all? Um, I think it's changed a lot since I've been within the field. And I, for me, I think the biggest change has probably been social media and the autistic community itself having a, a contact with each other and a presence with each other, which has enabled the autistic community to be a great force. And I think the autistic community has reclaimed the word autistic for themselves when maybe 10, 15 years ago, a lot of people with the Asperger diagnosis or autism diagnosis were rejecting the, the word autism. They wanted to be seen as separate. They wanted to be seen as Asperger's. Asperger's said, I don't have a learning disability. Um, I'm an able, intellectually able person. I don't want to be bang, you know, shoved in the same group as, as these you know, nonverbal learning disabled people. Um, whereas I think now... This feels like a much greater sense of we're all in this together and actually we're all autistic for some people. So I, I see people now rejecting the Asperger label. A little bit of that might be the, you know, the, the kind of Nazi connotation stuff. But most of it, I think there's just a greater sense of community in the word autistic that's owned by, by the people themselves. Well, there certainly is a, a thriving online community and... I don't know where I'd be if it wasn't for these Facebook groups where I can go in and read all these stories of all these other women and realize, oh, my gosh, that's me. You know, I'm not the only one who does that. And then to find thousands more people who do is the most amazing experience. Yeah. And I see that all the time. And again, my perception is, again, it may be incorrect that it's more females who benefit from that almost ironic yes we're autistic yes we struggle perhaps to be around people sometimes but we really want to belong somewhere yes we've gone through our lives just not just trying to belong somewhere blending in faking copying mimicking whatever we need to do and then there you are you find this group of people and they're your people and that the joy and the relief and the, the community that I think that women have got out of that um, is, not, is not something that people would have considered a few years ago, um, how important and how valuable that is. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. I don't, I don't know if this kind of awakening would be possible without online media, just because, at least for myself, I get so much in my head. I argue so much with myself. If I don't have somebody else to talk to, then 
I, I would never have realized that this was a thing and that this was part of me for sure. Mm. Mm. Uh, yeah. yeah. Would you explain what you mean by the phrase autistics have a spiky profile? It's uh, it's a generally considered phrase, not one made up by me. I'm taking no credit for it. Um, typically, it means that where some non-autistic individuals may be fairly all-rounders in terms of their maths ability, English ability, flexibility, uh, language, socialization, all of that kind of thing, that it is considered that autistic people have quite severe spikes and troughs, i.e. that we are particularly good at certain types of things and particularly rubbish at other types of things. And I'm sure some people may object to the term rubbish, but I'll speak for myself. <laughs> in, I'm in fine with it. I, I don't do, I, don't, I just, I'm a realist. Uh, yeah. I'm, you know, it's, it's strengths and challenges, whatever you want to call it. No, I'm rubbish at certain things. That's fine. I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. And I, typically, the, yeah, the, the, it's, supposedly about a kind of brain profile that seems to sort of favor logic favors linear favors solution finding favors patterns um which are all highly valuable and useful kind of things to do uh unless you want to work out what the hell somebody's doing with their face and what (laughs) they mean and whether they're in a bad mood or not and whether you've offended them and what the hell you're supposed to do about it and why are they crying and (laughs) that is considered to be more abstract in terms of its thought processes it's harder to make patterns it's harder to make links um around people because people arguably are the most irrational things on the planet um, and so typically, as we would expect, an autistic person is often very good at pattern spotting and uh, more solid concepts um, and struggles much more in terms of things, decision making and people and that kind of stuff. It's basically the autistic profile is the things that we're rubbish at um, in comparison to a non-autistic person. I mean, obviously, the profile, the diagnostic criteria looks at a deficit model, which I don't necessarily agree with um but it does seem to be the case that that brilliant people can be unusually rubbish um in a way that the non-autistic population perhaps aren't well i was reading shakespeare when i was five but i still can't do my times tables so there you go <laughs> <laughs> but times tables are patterns and logic and they never change yeah but when you have dyscalculia and the numbers okay. slide around yeah, in yeah, your yeah. head, okay. there's just no hope sure. for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's just absolutely. one of those I can't things. do left and... As it turns I, out, I, I they invented do. calculators and I was saved, so it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> they still haven't invented something to read Shakespeare for me, so there you go. <laughs> or read people. Or people, no, but I sure took a lot of psychology classes when I was younger. That's for darn Well, exactly, and that's what a lot of the women seem to do. Yeah. It's get a manual to understand people in the same way you might get a manual to work out your washing machine or your car. Yeah, um, yeah I studied astrology and everything else, just trying to make sense out of people. And yep. then I, yep. I turned 50 and decided it didn't matter. <laughs> I wasn't even going to try. <laughs> I've been much happier since then. That's a good move. So I've had more than one job. <laughs> and 
I see that you said that you have had 35 jobs. Oh, at least, maybe 40. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally unemployable. I I am too, and I cannot <laughs> tell you what, I think I wept. I wept when I saw you say that in one of your YouTube lectures. Right. That, I feel like, is the most painful part of this, is that we want to work, we want to make money, and yeah. we can't hack it in these social situations. I think I saw on yours that you said that you had never been fired from a job, that you had only quit them. Is that still true? Yes, that's true, yeah. I've been fired from lots of jobs. <laughs> I should have quit, Sarah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> <laughs> I should have got up and left, but, you know, I I kept hanging in, desperately trying to make it work. And so... I often just tell women to walk, which may not be the best advice, but <laughs> but it's advice I wish I had followed. And I certainly have enjoyed having my own businesses rather than trying to work for somebody else. Has that worked out for you? Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, obviously, it has its own trials and pressures and concerns, um, but ultimately there is a sense of control uh, of some degree about what you do and how you do it. Um, And I just can't keep my mouth shut if I'm working for someone else and I see something which is blatantly stupid or inefficient or unethical or, uh, you know, anything. I I have to to stick my nose in and that's just not appreciated. So it's much better that I just stay by myself and make my own mistakes. And, but I'm always right. So, you know, sure, if of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> of course. I, spend... but I think genuinely that's the thing. No, I, I I'm totally right get it. I, I see I, it. I, I agree with you. I, I yeah. spent a brief stint as a bookkeeper and that didn't work out very well because <laughs> people embezzle and people lie and they think nobody's yeah. going to see it. And if you have an autistic bookkeeper, they are going to find it and, yeah, and yeah, they're going absolutely. to call you out on it. Yeah, I just I just can't not notice the detail that you know, mm-hmm. the marketing's wrong, the website's wrong, the advertising's wrong, the way you've laid this out is wrong, the way this is working is wrong. <laughs> it, you, just, you just see patterns. You don't even try. They just leap out at you. You know, we know about people that can spot, you know, like yourself, perhaps this data in in amongst us, you know, errors in amongst a sea of print or numbers or or something. But it's not. I'm not trying to make trouble. I just, it's just there in front of me, and, and it, it, it's wrong. I would just get frustrated because I would feel like people had hired me to do a job, but then were upset when I did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I think my problem is that I stick my nose into things that aren't actually my job. Oh, pshaw. <laughs> <laughs> but when you have a mind that can look at the patterns in a whole system, then you can see how somebody's mistake over in shipping is going to make your life hell weeks or even months down the road, and you don't want to have to deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think quite often, this is another thing that's come up quite a lot, is is being perceived as a negative person because you spot 
how improvements could be made. And so you draw people's attention to them. And therefore, people say, God, you're such a downer. You're always negative. You're always critical. When my experience, and again, other people I've spoken to say, no, 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 I want it to be better. That My motivation is not to go, hey, you, you're wrong. It's to say, look, 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 if we do this, it will be better. So it, it's a drive for improvement, whereas it seems that it's often taken personally as an attack and a, and a way of going, you failed, you failed. And that isn't our motivation at all. It's No, exactly we're trying to save them horrific embarrassment down the line. <laughs> yeah, but I think perhaps some non-autistic people take things quite personally and will perceive that as a criticism when actually it's, it's, it's not meant that way. And so we are, yeah, we are perceived as, as being rude and negative and insensitive when we're just seeing improvements and we, we, we're perfectionists. We want things to be as good as they can be. In uh, one of your talks, you discuss how anxiety affects everything. Can you talk a little bit about how anxiety can make the experience of being autistic so difficult? Um, my inspiration for talking about this came from a book called um, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy from for Adults with Asperger's Syndrome by a woman called Valerie Gauss. She's an American, American uh, psychologist, I think. Um, and she has this wonderful flowchart in her book, which basically kind of starts with the the cognitive areas of autism, the processing people, language, relationships, processing uh, sensory stuff, internal sensory stuff, external sensory stuff, and then processing this abstract world that we live in that keeps changing and you have to make decisions and you don't know what's going to happen. And basically, she kind of fed all of this down that if you think in a certain way in a world which is very social, very changeable and very sensory, then bit by bit, the your behavior, the consequences will will mean that there's a huge potential for you to be isolated, for you not to get support, for people to misunderstand you, for your life to be quite chaotic because you're struggling to plan in a fast paced changing world and this eventually kind of takes you into into anxiety uh depression stress those kind of things um and so i i thought this was really amazing um and so i i use it to say to people um that as an autistic person you're correct to be anxious this, this anxiety is not inadequacy on your part it doesn't mean you're failing it doesn't mean you're crap you're actually correct to be anxious because you live in a world which is social, changeable and sensory and, and you're quite overwhelmed by all three of those things. So if you go to a shopping centre, which is very loud, very overwhelming, you can't find the things that you want and you're struggling to have a conversation with the shop assistant to get what you want, all three of those bits of autism, the people, the change and the sensory are being kind of walloped all at the same time. So it's no wonder that you're likely to kind of feel stressed by that. Um, and what I find is that rather than thinking that's a terrible kind of bleak thing to say, oh, God, I'm always going to be anxious. Um, a lot of autistic people go, oh, great. Well, at least I know why. And then once you're fueled with the knowledge of why, then you can start to prepare yourself to go out into the world um, and to try to be able to do the things that you need to be able to do and want to be able to do whilst you can kind of manage your, your well-being. So maybe you go to the shopping centre early 
when it's quieter. Maybe you check online whether the thing that you want is going to be available before you go. So you're trying to kind of map and manage, predict the future to support you to getting the things that you want, but without ending up. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And I, I almost feel like there should be a different word for it, that anxiety implies that you're afraid of something that isn't real. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stress might be better, but yeah, mm. no, absolutely. I, I think some people differentiate kind of between the two. Um, I think it depends on whether, I mean, also there's obviously a, um, a subconscious sort of body response to something. Sometimes it's a thought response, an anticipation to something. So it's a whole mixture of, of stuff, uh, you know, of, of what's going on in the mind and the body and all of all of those kind of things. But no, you're right. I think I think anxiety doesn't cover the breadth and the different mm-hmm. experiences that, that people have. Necessarily. I think for me, it was certainly helpful just to realize that I was not imagining my aversion to fluorescent lights, that it yeah. wasn't something that I had somehow convinced myself of and just taking that psychological pressure off actually made it easier for me to go into those situations where I know I'm going to be bombarded with those kinds of lights and because I'm giving my permission myself permission to leave if I need to absolutely I think and I think that's the benefit of the diagnosis for a lot of people Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what I feel the benefit is is because it begins to give you a framework in which to consider these things, like you say about the fluorescent lighting, or why can I only manage 15 minutes in a shop when everybody else likes to go for five hours? So I think without the diagnosis and without the awareness, there's a tendency to go, well, there's just something wrong with me. I just need to keep going, and or you know, yeah. I'm just lazy, or I'm, I'm just rubbish. Um, whereas actually, this diagnosis says. Well, that's probably why, because it's busy and it's fluorescent and it's draining Mm -hmm. and you have to focus on everything and you can't filter properly. So, yeah, you're going to be exhausted. So how do I get around this? Yeah, Um, that's my feeling of of how the diagnosis works. Diagnosis for adult women is almost impossible in the United States right now. Really? Oh, yeah. yeah. And there's no benefit to doing so. It's expensive. Mm. You may have to go through, you know, three or four diagnosticians to get an accurate diagnosis. And then there's no support at all. I came to do your really big conference maybe three years ago. The, what are, what are the, is it ASA, something like that? American. It's a really big one, you, autism conference that you have every year. Really, really big mm-hmm. national thing. Um, and I, I ran, a, I was invited to come over and do a small uh, breakout session on, on women and autism. Um, and I think there were th- over 3,000 delegates at that conference. And I think there were 16 people came to my session. Oh, no. And two, maybe two thirds or three quarters of them were, were autistic women. So there were no, no professionals or, or if there were, it was one or two. There was no interest whatsoever uh, at all out of those 3,000 people. To even well, there's there's no money in it. So, mm. Mm. like, I, even if I had, you know, state state run health care insurance, it would not cover it. Right. 
it doesn't yeah. cover any of that. And so I self-diagnosed just a few months ago in November, and mm-hmm. I'm 58 years old. I know myself. <laughs> yeah. it, it made no sense for me to try to hunt down a diagnosis right now, but I am incredibly optimistic that that's going to change over the next five years. Okay. Just Good. because I remember when depression, clinical depression, was considered something people were making up in their heads. And sure. within a number of years now, it's everybody knows what it is. So I'm optimistic for us. Yeah, I, th- I think things will change and things will be different. Um, yeah, they, they, all, they always are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if self-diagnosis is all that's possible or it is satisfactory, then that's absolutely fine and perfect. Some people just want an external person that they trust to say, yes, you're right or no, you're wrong and this is why you're wrong. So I think that's certainly my experience why adults seek, sometimes seek diagnosis is and because I, the am I, aren't I just goes round and round in their heads and they just want some certainty. They want, because sure, they want that reassurance and, and I totally support that. And if I did not have an inherent mistrust of authority, I might be that way too. But, you know, I've always, every time I went to a doctor, I was always questioning everything they said anyway. So, Absolutely. So the, the point was somebody somebody they trust. Yes, yeah, that's a good so point. So you end up in a system where, certainly again in, in the UK, uh, similarly, mm-hmm. that you might be able to be put forward for a diagnosis, but will you the person that you get, are you necessarily going to trust yeah. the, the opinion that they come to uh, is accurate? But, yeah. Um, like yourself, you know, the vast majority of people that go for diagnosis have done a huge amount of research. You don't believe that you're autistic without pretty good reason. Mm-hmm. If, if you're not autistic, it just doesn't stack up when you start reading about autism. You can't relate to it. None of it stacks up. It's unusual to find someone who is completely and utterly wrong. Um, and if they are wrong, the reason is often that they have ADHD instead. Uh. Um, or they have very severe OCD, for example, or, um, you know, big, big anxiety. Or they are phenomenally clever. And that might look like autism, mm-hmm. but, but they don't quite fit the criteria. So, so typically there's a really good reason why somebody thinks they might be autistic and, uh, that, and actually they don't meet the criteria. That's interesting. And that makes sense that people wouldn't look at that list of traits and think, oh, that might be me and then have it not be them. No, yeah. no. If, if you don't recognize it, you don't recognize yeah. it at all. It, it's, it's, no, no, yeah. no. It's quite unusual. The only people that are really, really, really wrong are those that have been persuaded into diagnosis by a partner, a parent, a well-meaning person mm-hmm. who's seen a TV show and said, oh, that's you. Uh, and then this person's come along and said, I have no idea why I'm here. <laughs> um, yeah. My mother, my father, my wife, my husband, my partner, somebody thinks I should be here. And, you know, after 10 minutes, they're kind of going, well, there's nothing here. <laughs> wow. Wow. So... I I know that you did stand up comedy for a while. Yes, I did. Can you was that fun? Did you that's always been kind of one of those things that I thought, oh, maybe I should try that just because 
occasionally I'll say something and people will laugh. And I, mm-hmm. but I have no idea why. So maybe <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, maybe I can make this into a money maker. <laughs> <laughs> so did, you traveled uh, around the country and did stand up? Yes, I went on a course. So I learned how to do it. Um, I learned the structure. There are very clear rules in writing comedy and delivering comedy. Um, so I learned the rules. Um, because I like to learn how to do things like that. Um, yeah, and I, I did it for uh, two years very, uh, very determinedly. I did a, over 100 gigs a year for those two years. I was still working full time and looking after my son. Um, and I enjoyed, I'm very much a language person, so I enjoyed the very precise construction of jokes. Um, it's, it's very precise. It's not off the top of your head. It's not ad-libbed. Um, comedians are very, very accurate and pedantic about language. So I enjoyed the building of the joke. I enjoyed the testing of the joke and finding out whether it was getting the feedback, the laughter that it was that it was supposed to get. Um, whereas some people, if they didn't do very well, they would be very crushed by that their self-esteem would be harmed they would go away and think they were the worst person ever it never bothered me because it seemed to me that the joke was almost a a separate entity from me Mm -hmm. the joke was just something I built and if people didn't like what I had built then I needed to know why and I could go back and I could amend it and I could improve it so it was never it was never attached to my my Mm self-esteem my self-worth so if I completely died on my ass and I was just interested by that and why that might be and what I could do to change it. So I never why, why a joke would right. work in one environment and not another. Yeah. 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 Whether it was the way I delivered it, whether it was you know, the environment itself, uh, you know, if the warm up had been good, if the, you know, the general atmosphere was good, whether, yeah, maybe the words needed changing slightly. I just enjoyed the analysis of the language and the testing it out and the feedback. Um, I, I think if it, crushes you personally that people are not laughing at you mm-hmm. then it's probably not a good place not a good thing really. was that You've something got to be very thick skin was did you know that you were autistic when you were doing that yes ah so were you able to make jokes about autism did you or no 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 i never did only only once um when i was invited to do um, the mid uh, awards ceremony entertainment for the National Autistic Society here in the UK's um, professional awards ceremony. They asked me to do a short comedy set, uh. so I I wrote a special set, which was basically about me being autistic and how everybody else was so weird. It's on YouTube. This this set and it's. It's basically just throwing it back at the neurotypical audience and saying, why do you do this stuff? You're so weird. Um, and of course, they love it because people just love seeing themselves reflected in a mirror. Yes. From from a different perspective. Um, so that was my kind of view on why do you talk about this stuff? Why does this matter? Yeah. Why is this important? Um, and yeah, no, when it was it was great. But no, I never wanted I never wanted to be an autistic comedian in terms of being my my content um, it, yeah just yeah just 
it's not something I wanted to put my, set myself up as. Can you tell us one of your jokes? No. <laughs> <laughs> jokes don't work out of context. It's I just, totally get yeah. it. Yeah, I, to- I totally <laughs> understand. And I, I knew I was putting you on the spot. And I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember any. Um, I haven't done it for several years. But no, they just don't work. People always kind of go, oh, you're going to be really funny. And I'm, oh, well, well kind, I think you what are. What kind of pressure is that? You can't just be funny. That doesn't <laughs> well, work. <laughs> some of your talks that I've seen um, on YouTube, you, you are funny. And it shows. And that was the comedy training. The comedy training really shows. Comedy I, training. Really I have helped. an MFA in theater and a small Shakespeare company. And so, yeah, I recognize training when I see it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And People I think, think it makes your lectures incredibly watchable and easy to understand because there isn't just this sort of relentless pace of this hard hitting deeply emotional psychological stuff you you build up the tension you release the tension you give people a little catharsis and then you hit them with something heavy again and I just I think they're beautifully done and thank you any of you who haven't watched any of those YouTube videos (laughs) you absolutely should I end up posting them and your books in every Facebook group that I belong to because I always get these comments back like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. This is life changing. And it really is, Sarah. Those pixels that you put out into the world are saving people's lives and helping us make sense of ourselves. So thank you so much for being so generous with all those YouTube videos out there. I wish we could give you you know, a dime for every time they get watched because (laughs) then you could retire probably in comfort. That would be great. Yeah, that would be lovely. Yeah, if you could just send me lots of money for for, for all my... (laughs) Most of the time, it's not even me that puts them up there. It's just a conference organizer says, can we film this? And I go, yeah, go for it. And then they stick them up there. I don't don't even know that I put any any up there myself. So, yeah, I'm very happy for people to share... And see whatever. I'm not precious about you know, a- anything. If it, if it, not everyone can afford to go to a conference. Not everyone can get there. So if it's accessible and people get that information. Well, and so many of us don't even know that we need to go to a conference. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. Until I saw your video, I was still questioning everything in my head. And then you were describing your life story, and I was. I was just stunned. I was like, oh, my yeah. gosh. I've That's never... exactly what happened to me. That's exactly my experience of just, yeah, just being stunned that somebody could just be identically having the same experiences and screw-ups, mostly. And, you know, right down to the, oh, you know, having kind of a wild young adulthood and then becoming a mother and just going, nope, I don't do that anymore. Yeah. That was definitely something I did as well. And my friends were all really shocked. Yeah, yeah. But it seemed obvious to me (laughs) that you don't... Yeah, and again, it's that spiky profile that you mentioned earlier. It's, you know, people would say, you are so clever, how can you be so stupid? Um, Yeah. That that you, you have all of these qualifications, and yet you're naive, you're vulnerable, you'll do anything for someone to like you 
get into all these dangerous situations because you can't tell who a predator is. And and then, you know, my family just going, what is the matter with you? Why are you doing this? And, and me just not knowing how else to be, that, that I didn't have an option. I didn't choose. Yeah. I, I just, I was just being me. And I just kept ending up getting in these scrapes because of this poor decisions that I was making because I couldn't, couldn't predict consequences I couldn't read people I, I couldn't imagine what might happen to me so I just leapt in and uh, I always used to say I was really surprised not to have been found chopped up in a ditch um, because of the stupid decisions that I, I made and I don't think I'm any different I, I think if I was in those situations now if I was a single person if I was out socializing in, in the evening I, I would be the same person I, I don't mm. think I can learn because I still can't read people and I still can't predict things and I still can't see them. People go, well, don't you grow out of it? No, not if you're neurologically. Yeah. But you you fell in love. Yes. And you met somebody who is nice to you. <laughs> yeah, yes. I, and he works yes, very have. hard for you. We've been, we've been going back and forth with the email yes. trying to get this set up. Yes. He's a complete pain in the arse. <laughs> Nobody else would put up with him, um, but I completely adore him, and he completely adores me, and I'm so grateful for that. Eat love grand. <laughs> it is. We're very much. He's in a pod. We, everybody else finds us probably quite difficult to be around, but we find <laughs> each other extremely easy to be around. Um, we don't much get on with many other people, but we have the most joyful, childlike singing and dancing fun in our home every single day. And I, I am that truly blessed and grateful. Absolutely wonderful. Yes, it is. Um, so I understand that you like goats. <laughs> <laughs> I am a double Capricorn. Ah. <laughs> I am a Chinese. I am a Chinese goat and I'm a Capricorn. Wow. So, yes, I've always. Oh, I just love goats. I just I just really identify with this. I like to eat everything. Ah. I, I mean, literally everything. If somebody shows me a new plant, my first question is, can I eat it? <laughs> <laughs> I will try everything that I find growing. If it's a anything, anything, I like to eat everything. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm just belligerent and noisy. And I just love their attitude. Nothing stops them. They're just, I'm going and I'm eating. That's it. That's me. So do you have a herd of goats now? No, no. Oh. I, I travel too much and I, no, I don't I don't have animals because I see. Because well I move around too much for work and those kind of things. Do you, so it's always been my dream. Do you do you I, aspire I, to have a goat farm someday? I don't think I'd like a farm. I probably they you I don't think you can have them on their own. They're quite sociable, so I'd need no. at least two. Maybe, maybe. Although I have to say, I have to say that any any creature, even a cat, would feel like an intrusion on my uh, total insular life with heath. So I'm not sure we can have any animals. I Everything see. gets in the way. We, we our, our attention is diluted if there's anything in the in the house, a person or a cat or a goldfish even. Got it. <laughs> we, we don't like that. We're, we're very. We just like to be on our own, really. So I probably go and volunteer in a goat farm or something. There or get a you job. Go. 
Yeah. And do you do a lot of cooking? Do you do canning and things like that? Yes, I make absolutely everything. I'm a big forager, grower. Um, yeah, I've, I've just had lunch of uh, foraged wild garlic soup. I made some French bread this morning. I made ginger cordial. I make my own butter. I make my own de- deodorant, toothpaste. Uh, you name it, I, I make everything. Wow, that Love sounds it. delicious. <laughs> Yes. We're yes. all going to show up in the middle of the woods to eat your French no, bread. <laughs> no, no, no visitors. No and then you'll hide, yeah? <laughs> you don't even know where I am. I have no address. There's no road. There's no, no number. You'll never find me. Wow. <laughs> That's wonderful. So y- yes. you, you two live out in a magical cottage in the woods, baking bread and foraging for greens exactly. in the forest exactly. with the fairies, yep. huh? I'm making baskets out of uh, blackberries, brambles. Um, yeah, I just making. I just make everything out of sticks and whatever I can find. Uh, wow, that's that just sounds freaking awesome. <laughs> so if you could send me all that money from all the YouTube videos, I wouldn't have to go to work anymore, and I could just make things out of sticks for the rest of my wouldn't life. Wouldn't that be nice? Or you could just make That'd baskets and ship them out. <laughs> exactly. Huh? Otherwise, your house is going to be filled with baskets pretty soon. It I know how that will. goes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes, yes. That's that's this week's passion. I'll have moved on to something else. Next. Of course, of course. <laughs> oh, that just sounds like a wonderful life. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to impart to our listeners who are all in the future at this point? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think we should all just try our hardest to be ourselves as much as we possibly can. And I know you said from being turning 50 that there was a bit of a a bit of a change in terms of how much things mattered. Is that is that fair to, to say? That was a, a feeling that you'd had around that age? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I felt like when I turned 50 that just a switch went off and I just yeah. Yeah. really didn't care I, what other people thought. And I never masked in the first place because I grew up in a family full of autistics. And so yeah. I just thought it was normal and I just kind of thought I was smarter than most people and that that's why yeah. they didn't understand me, which did not endear me to them either. <laughs> as yes. it turns out. Very much. Yeah, I very much identify with that. I've, I've been working with a, with a life coach and uh, about this, you know, trying to get it right for everybody, putting everybody else first kind of thing. And, and, and she gave me this great idea about, she said, you should be more disappointing should allow people to be disappointed because my thing has always been that I'm allowed to be disappointed but nobody else is Mm. I will always go out of my way to do it right be right to try and avoid that judgment of being wrong because I'm always wrong I'm always saying the wrong thing doing the wrong thing being insensitive and I've really embraced this idea of being disappointing so, so that would be my message to 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 any of your future listeners is is just be a bit more disappointed <laughs> to other people. Let them take on board the disappointment. You don't have to make the world perfect for absolutely everybody. Um, and I think I, I hope it doesn't take everybody until they're fifty to get there. It's taken me till I'm fifty, and it took you till you were fifty. But I'm mm-hmm. so hopeful of generations of younger autistic women that will just get there a little bit earlier and I kind of even wanted a t-shirt that just said I'm disappointing (laughs) and I just I just really like this 
And every time I am disappointing, when I say no to somebody, when I wouldn't have done in the past, I, I just I just feel a little sense of glee and pride that I've <laughs> just been disappointing. <laughs> well, I, I realized one day that if you can't say no, you can't really say yes. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And that gave me a lot more permission to say no to all these things that I would just go, oh, yes, yes, I'll do that. Yes, yes. I'll do that. Yeah. But isn't And very... I'm a very ungracious no. Yeah. I'd say I'd say yes to somebody and then go away and just moan and grumble and weep and <laughs> stick pins in their eyes metaphorically in the distance. So I'm, I'm not a gracious yes person. Mm -hmm. so, and that's not good either. No, it's not, not a real yes. <laughs> no, no. But it's isn't... a very begrudging yes. I wonder if saying, wearing a shirt saying I'm disappointing is a way of staving <laughs> off that disappointment in others is that it's like <laughs> I warned you <laughs> exactly just don't ask me anything you will be disappointed that's that's the message but it's very empowering to just to just state your needs yes. and this is this was the message from my life coach just state your needs and yes. I I've just enormously struggled yes. to do that because I've always felt that I didn't really have the right to have any needs because I was getting it wrong in so many other areas mm. that the, the least I could do was to be accommodating yes. and try and make up for it by you know, going the extra mile, giving, giving, giving to try and make up for the fact that I was obviously failing in, in these other social uh, you know, kind of areas or something. So, yeah, I think, I think that's, that feels hugely liberating. No. Well, Sarah, no. thank you so much. You, you inspired me to do this podcast at all. And now I have some really exciting guests lined up after you. Oh, wonderful. wonderful. Have, Who uh, have you got Dr. coming? When I'm going to be speaking to. And, oh, wow. Great. And a few other people. And then I now that I've interviewed you, see, you're my first guest. And so then I could write to them and say, oh, I got Sarah Hendricks. And then they're all on board. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank if, you if, if it helps thank you so welcome. much sarah and anytime you want to be on a podcast again and talk about something that you've got going on do you have a new book coming out or anything that you want to tell people about no i just make soup and baskets that's all <laughs> i do i have nothing to offer <laughs> <laughs> well soup and baskets sounds yeah. pretty freaking awesome <laughs> All right. Have lovely soup. All right, thank you. I don't want to I keep will. you any longer, and I do hope that you'll come back sometime because I'd love to talk to you again. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank bye you, bye. Sarah. Okay. Bye.